Good evening, everyone. It's uh, wonderful to see so many of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium this evening. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Louise Mirror, very proud president and CEO of the New York Historical Society. Uh, this week, we are opening a great new exhibition. You may have seen the Broadway Lights, Al Hirschfeld's Century, and um, it is a really terrific show. So come back Friday and uh, over the next several months to see this really glorious exhibition of Al Hirschfeld's work over really almost a century, just about a century. It's a really terrific show. Um, still on view is Lincoln and the Jews. If you have not yet been to see it, I think you will find it a completely eye-opening show with, um, with many pieces on exhibition that are in private hands, so they've not been seen by the public before. Tonight's program, Infamy, the shocking story of Japanese-American internment in World War II, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great support, which has enabled us to bring so many great historians and writers to this auditorium. I'd also like to thank and recognize several of our trustees in the audience this evening, the vice chair of our board, Mr. Richard Reese, and Mr. Carl Mangus, and Mr. Michael Weisberg. I'd like to thank all of you for all that you do on behalf of this great institution. Thank you. We also have many Chairman's Council members in attendance tonight, and I'd like to thank you as well. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. Audience members will be invited to approach two standing mics to my left and to my right in the aisles. We ask you to do that so that the speakers on the stage, everyone in the audience, and those who are listening to our podcasts can hear your question. Uh, following the program, please do join us for a book signing with tonight's speaker, whose book will be available for purchase in our museum store. Now then, we are so very pleased to welcome back to the New York Historical Society, Richard Reeves. Professor Reeves is senior lecturer at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Southern California, and he is an author and syndicated columnist whose columns have appeared in more than 100 newspapers since 1979. He's been named a literary lion by the New York Public Library and has won a number of print journalism awards. And he's also been a Pulitzer Prize finalist and juror. He's also the author of numerous books, including the definitive work, President Kennedy, Profile of Power. His most recent critically acclaimed book is Infamy, the shocking story of the Japanese American internment in World War II. Our moderator tonight is Leslie Stahl, who's been a correspondent for CBS 60 Minutes for over 20 seasons. Prior to joining 60 Minutes, Ms. Stahl was the CBS News White House correspondent during the Carter, Reagan, and George H.W. Bush administrations. During much of that time, she also served as moderator of Face the Nation, CBS News Sunday public affairs broadcast, where she interviewed Margaret Thatcher and Yasser Arafat as well as virtually every top U.S. official. She has a collection of Emmy Awards for her interviews and reporting, including a Lifetime Achievement Emmy from 2003, and she's also the recipient of three Edward R. Murrow Awards. Before we begin, as always, I'd like to ask you to please turn off whatever might make a noise like a cell phone 
And now, please join me in welcoming our guests to the stage. Thank you. No? Can't now? Oh, magic. Thank you all for coming. Um, this is my friend, Richard Reeves. We've known each other our whole lives. We grew up yeah. together, sort of. Um, when we were children. When we were adorable. Um, Richard, I knew that uh, Japanese Americans were rounded up uh, right after Pearl Harbor. Um, and I'm very well read. And everything in this book surprised me. Hi, Millie. Everything in this book surprised me. Every page I learned something I didn't know. And frankly, I was horrified. And frankly, there were pages where I actually cried. Yeah. Because it is so outrageous. So outrageous. Yeah. So set the stage for us. After Pearl Harbor, how many Japanese Americans were rounded up and put into concentration camps? That's the word. Concentration. And Roosevelt used that word. Yeah. And <coughs> tell us how many camps. and... Most of them were from the West Coast, where these camps were. Well, there were two waves. Uh, before sundown on December 8th, the FBI had rounded up 3,000 Japanese Americans uh, from the West Coast, where 120,000 lived. Now, they also were picking up some, some German Americans and some Italian Americans yeah. here, because they were enemy aliens, and you have perfect legal right, so that the Japanese-American community was then totally beheaded in terms of its leadership, because that the FBI had like rotary cup lists. So if you were a teacher, a journalist, a doctor, uh, a, uh, a businessman or whatnot, I obviously, you were a leader of the community. Those are the people they picked up, all uh, 3,000 men and 13 women. And their families often, for a year or more, did not know where they were. And they were enemy aliens. When the big roundup came of all Japanese Americans, two-thirds of them were American citizens. And it was a pretty vicious way they went about it. To begin with, so they had census data, and so they knew where Japanese lived, but they wanted to find out people who didn't appear, so that they would scour the orphanages to find out if there were any You kids, believe they any, took them out of orphanages? Any Japanese uh, blood. One drop of blood was the standard set by the Army. If you were Caucasian and you adopted, I read this in the book, yeah. and you adopted a Japanese child, that child had to go to the camp. They would pick it up. They searched records to find out. These were some very bad people. There were very good people at the top. And then what they and then on February 19th of, of 1942, uh, Roosevelt signed Executive Order 1099. It was very cleverly drawn to say that the military had the power to establish war zones. In the West Coast, they established a war zone. Uh, and then at their discretion, they could move and evacuate anyone they cared about. Well, there was a little gerrymandering going on. Joe DiMaggio's parents lived in that area, but the, even the army was smart enough not to arrest Joe DiMaggio's dad. But what happened was within that war zone, they only took out the Japanese and the Japanese Americans. And all 100, And they were 000. first taken 
to what were called, and they were totally cooperative. They thought it was their patriotic duty. They were told that it was being done to protect them uh, in case there was white vigilantism. They were first taken uh, after February 19th. They assembled at, at assembly centers. There was no resistance, whatever. They could only take what they could carry. They could take only what they could carry, which meant two suitcases or a suitcase and a baby. And had no idea where they're going uh, either. But they, they were then rounded up, more than 115,000 of them. And since the concentration camps had not been built, they were being built at that moment on, on the plans for prisoner of war camps. Uh, so the Japanese Americans were taken to assembly centers, which were Santa Anita, horse track, Tanforan, horse track, uh, livestock exposition fairs, fairgrounds, and they lived in stables. You found for, one for, guy. What? You found oh. one guy who lived in Seabiscuits stable. I found, no, no, no. I found a hundred guys who said they did. <laughs> uh, but literally, these, these people, families, graduates of Stanford, graduates of Berkeley, doctors, uh, were put family by family into horse stalls and uh, animal stalls at the livestock exposition and were held there. It was terrible. I mean, in, in the end, 1,800 people died from disease. But the, they, while they built camps, 10 camps around the country called relocation camps, uh, and they were, the army was building them. They were tar paper shacks, no water, no cooking facilities, one electric light per barrack. And families of eight, for instance, and sometimes non-families uh, were mixed into tar paper, these tar paper rooms. Uh, Cold places. Wait, yeah, 12 by 18 in areas of the country, the worst parts of the country, uh, the high deserts and Arkansas swamps. Uh, and in these places, the temperatures ranged from 120 degrees in the summer to 30 below in the winter. The men, the young men, would dig foxholes under the barracks so the children during the heat in Arizona, in California, Colorado, uh, Wyoming, uh, so that they would remain as cool as they could during the day. Uh, Can I step, go back for one yeah. sec? Before they get to the camps, they literally had to leave everything. You write about a guy who sold his car, an Oldsmobile, for $25. Right. They just had to get out. Worse they than that, he and his wife who had invested $28,000 in an ice cream business they had, had to sell it for $1,000. And, and this in was, many cases, if you couldn't find a buyer, after all, on December 8th, all their bank accounts were frozen. So if you were then thrown into a stable and finally a camp, you weren't going to pay your mortgage, you weren't going to pay your insurance, and your property would be classified under the Attorney General of California, or Warren. Uh, your property would be classified as abandoned. Because, because what drove it was the fear after Pearl Harbor, the racism, after all, that only happened uh, to people of cur, color and greed. The Japanese were prosperous on the West Coast. Before, 19, before, in 1940, 
47% of the agricultural product uh, production of California was from Japanese farms. Yeah, you Well, the white farmers wanted yeah. this land, and as soon as they left, they burned down their houses. But uh, you suggest that, that the agricultural interests had a part in pushing this, in making this happen. Totally. So well, they could basically steal their right. property it was and their crops. The press, politicians, uh, Earl Warren rode the Japs, rode the back of the Japanese to the governorship. Uh, it, uh, you know, everybody was exploiting everybody, and the agricultural interests and fishing interests too, just took over what the Japanese had. In rare cases, their neighbors protected their property, but it was rare. What what was Roosevelt's part in all this? What what was his thinking? What was his mentality? And what did he actually do? Well, he actually put all those people in camps. But he had to. What sign was his mentality? This is a great band we're talking about, right? The uh, right up there with Lincoln and the Jews. Uh, the uh, <laughs> good one. Roosevelt was a racist, uh, and worse than that. Uh, he believed in eugenics. And if you look, which when I found them in the National Archives, the memos back and forth in his office, Roosevelt concluded with advice from the Smithsonian Institution that the problem with the Japanese was the shape of their skulls and that their skulls were shaped in such a way that it made them aggressive and it would take 2,000 years for them to reach the level of sophistication of people like us. Uh, so, really believe And then, but why did Roosevelt do this? Roosevelt did this because he was afraid of, there was great turmoil in the West, uh, and he was afraid of what would happen if this became an issue, which it didn't, uh, in the 1944 election. I mean, Roosevelt was then, as a politician, was quite vulnerable. And the fact is, if he had lost the West Coast to Tom Dewey in 1944, he would have lost the presidency. Uh, and he wanted this done to calm down the West Coast. Uh, and it was The great popular? permission came. This was popular? Extraordinarily popular. Extraordinarily popular. And the Japanese Americans were not resisting. But still, Roosevelt was looking for cover, which he received. But among the people, the real villains uh, in this book are Walter Lippmann, Edward R. Murrow, the people in the press who were giving the president cover after they all traveled to the West. Earl Warren told them this is the situation. This was Earl Warren's theory. There has never been a single act of Japanese-American sabotage ever here either on the mainland or in hawaii of therefore it's proof that they're planning a big one <laughs> that it's like it's like the uh uh the fifth column uh description of Sp of spain during the, during their war uh and he sold that to walter lipman and to a lot of other people lipman rushed back to washington wrote two columns saying these people have to be locked up, and that gave Roosevelt the political cover. I want to add one other thing. We talk about who are the villains. The worst cartoons about the Japanese-Americans, and they were really, 
bad. I mean, there were headlines in the West about little brown men being tra- being trained to rape white women and whatnot. Front page of the LA Times on that one. Uh, but the cartoonist for PM here in New York uh, did kind of the iconic drawing. And what it was was buck-teethed, uh, glasses-wearing Japanese pouring down the West Coast to California where they were picking up dynamite and looking out in telescopes. And the caption was, uh, waiting for the signal from Tokyo. That cartoonist was named Theodore Geisel. That cartoonist was Dr. Seuss. Wow. <laughs> whoa, whoa. Well, wait a minute. Um, I know the answer to this, but I oh, yeah? love the answer. Tell God, us about... I, I do. You definitely know the answer to this. What about Eleanor? Well, Eleanor was an interesting case, and the uh, she... She first appears in the book with a letter she wrote to her daughter, Anna, who lived in Seattle. And she wanted her to come back to Washington, D.C. She didn't. She didn't go back. But in that letter that she wrote to her daughter, she expressed the same fear everyone else was. However, she wrote My Day, her column, and in the column said that she thought this was a big mistake. Easter 1943, Eleanor Roosevelt visits three of the camps and is photographed there and is saying, you know, these aren't exactly the resort communities you've been told they are. Uh, Same week, Easter week, Franklin Roosevelt uh, went to three army bases uh, in the West. And by then, there were Japanese American had all been discharged from the army on December 7th. But by 1943, some were back uh, because we needed more manpower. And they, when Roosevelt went to those camps, the Japanese American soldiers were rounded up and held under guard in, tra- in uh, trucks 10 miles from the camp and in aircraft ca- carriers. Uh, air, aircraft hangars where they were guarded by white soldiers with because the army didn't want uh, for Roosevelt to see any Japanese people, Americans, uh, and the uh, and they didn't uh, they then said these guys are dangerous they may kill the president so they locked them up when the president was around. Why did the Japanese Americans go so docilely? And politely, they never rebelled. They didn't push back. Right. Why not? Because they were patriotic. They thought this would be their contribution uh, to the to the war effort. Although Roosevelt and everyone below him knew that that was all horseshit. Uh, the uh, we. Uh, what was horseshit? You know King King Ken Ringle. Yeah. From the Washington Post. No. His father, Lieutenant Commander Kenneth Regal, uh, was one of the very few Caucasians who spoke Japanese. He had served in the American embassy in Tokyo for six years. Uh, he was doing the intelligence that was being fed back to Roosevelt. Uh, and he got a lot of that intelligence because he organized with the government secretly uh, a team of safecrackers. Uh, who went into Japanese consulates 
to see what they were saying. Japanese Americans. Yeah, Japanese Americans. Yeah, yeah. And the and what it said in those, you know, it didn't start with Watergate. Uh, <laughs> what it said in those records were under no circumstances try to contact Japanese Americans. They are all too loyal uh, to the country and they will b- betray us. Let's see if we can get Negroes and communists. Uh, that's what they found in, in the safes. And Roosevelt knew that. The other people, John McCloy, uh, who were involved in this, uh, Francis Biddle, the uh, Department of Justice, uh, they knew that the Japanese well, were no threat. And they also knew one other thing. The Japanese didn't have the military capability of attacking the West Coast. Um, it, there was one surprise, one official in Washington who spoke out, and of right. all people. J. Edgar Hoover was against uh, the incarceration, <laughs> partly because before the war, not partly, it was a turf war, uh, he, uh, they ran uh, Hawaii, uh, the FBI, and up till December 7th, they were also in charge of what amounted to intelligence and counterintelligence. Uh, but the army moved in very swiftly to take over. So the only guy, some people were speaking out in private, uh, and the, uh, but the uh, Hoover was the only guy in memos to, to uh, Roosevelt and in interviews and speeches who said there is no danger and we have this situation under control. In other words, I don't want the army messing in what I see as my business. But he was the only, the other person who spoke out publicly was Norman Thomas, the perennial uh, socialist candidate. Among the people, the Los Angeles Times, in the review of this book, said that the collection of villains is the most impressive since Antigone. And then it was continued on page, because I'm looking, are they going to compare me with Sophocles? <laughs> they, yeah, did they, they get there? They didn't. They stopped. Uh, but they, uh, it, uh, it was the secret that uh, dare not tell its name. Why I, I was it secret? It. Why was it secret? Why didn't the, the vast American public know about this? Because they were afraid of some of the things that actually did happen. Uh, after the Bataan Death March, many of us are old enough here, the Bataan Death March was never told to the American people uh, when it happened in 1942. It was only 18 months later that they released information because they were afraid American morale would drop if, if it was shown uh, what was happening. However, most of the Americans, there were more Filipinos, but most of the Americans who were on Bataan, or marched to Bataan, uh, were from a single state. It was, they were from the National Guard in New Mexico. The American people did not know that Bataan had happened, much less other things. However, people in New Mexico were receiving telegrams saying that their children had been killed. We're dead. We either killed in action or missing in action. And they marched uh, on to, there was a federal prison in Santa Fe, and people of the state marched on that with weapons planning to kill 
all the Japanese who were incarcerated there. Uh, so there they were talked out of it by a very smart colonel who told them, if you do, we can't stop you. We don't have enough power to stop you. But if you do this, it will be taken out on Americans who are in Japanese prison camps. And the crowd finally turned around. So there was some element of truth to the notion that they were herded away to protect them. I mean, in other words, they could believe part of that because of incidents Well, they like believed that. it. Some of them got the message when they got to the 10 relocation camps and the machine guns and towers were pointed in, not out, uh, and the tanks that surrounded. So they, uh, they bought into that uh, immediately and they were treated before they got to, I mean, the first, I just came from a place called Bainbridge Island in the state of Washington. They were the first people rounded up. And because they wanted the army, it was a snow fell on cedars. That is the book about this. Uh, they, the army wanted to experiment to see how much the Japanese would resist. There was no resistance. It was enough. I mean, talk about making you cry. The, uh, as the 271 Japanese Americans on Bainbridge Island were marched to a ferry, which would take them to Seattle, which then would take them to Manzanar in sealed trains uh, in California. They had no idea where they were going. And when they got there, they, they didn't know. But as they went through, the Japanese American kids on, on Bainbridge Island, it was high school, their high school graduation. But there was immediately a curfew uh, for Japanese Americans, so they couldn't go to their prom or to their graduation. And as they were being marched by armed soldiers onto the ferries, their classmates were standing on the side. And one of the reasons they were on the side was the Japanese were not allowed to bring pets. So a girl walking along would give her dog to a classmate, a Caucasian classmate. The dogs died. They wouldn't eat when they, uh, when they were not with their families, as it were. Uh, and then when they got to Seattle, uh, the, uh, there were crowds lined up to spit on them. That was a big thing, spitting on Japanese Americans in that period. I still don't quite understand why there, was, there were no reports of this, why the press didn't write about it, why the public... It's kept in the dark. Well, public was kept in the dark about a lot of things, uh, but there but, was a, 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 a propaganda operation being run uh, first by Milton Eisenhower, Dwight Eisenhower's brother, who quit. He was the head of war relocation. He quit because he couldn't sleep or eat anymore. He was so sick about what. Yeah, but it, he was being is a suggestion to. that if if the American people found out, they would rebel against? No. They were worried that the American people, uh, this information would come out and people would believe we were losing the war. That was and the reason. And that's a very powerful thing. It worked both ways. Many of the elderly Japanese in the camps throughout the four years they were imprisoned uh, believed that Japan was winning the war. But Roosevelt knew that was not true, particularly after uh, the Battle of uh, Midway. And but once we got into this business uh, of rounding up people, taking their property, locking them up, nobody knew how to get out of it. 
because these people had nothing to go back to. What were they going to do if they let them loose? When they finally let them loose, they gave each of them $25 after four years. Uh, but it, you know, there, it was war and it was, it was politics and they were the low-hanging fruit. If we had done the same thing with Italian-Americans and German-Americans, we would have had to build camps for 50 million people. Because almost everyone in this room, I'm sure, has either germ, a drop of German or and they were doing the drop. blood. Um, me, can I tell the Ezzo Penza story? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell, yeah tell this it. is the way <laughs> things worked. One of the very few Italians who was interned, not Joe DiMaggio and his parents, but was Ezio Penza. Ezio Penza was then the lead basso. He was married to an American. He lived in Bronxville. Uh, and Lee, he was the How many boss. saw him in South what? Pacific? How many saw him in South Pacific? Well, that was later. His, <laughs> that was later. His life got better. But he, five uh, FBI agents came to his home, searched everything. He didn't know why. They didn't tell him anything. They were, t- they were taking him out of the house in handcuffs. And suddenly the lead agent sees framed on the wall Italian writing. And he's and he says, "What's that?" And Pinza says, "That's a letter from Verdi." And the FBI agent said, "Who's Verdi?" <laughs> uh, they took him to Ellis Island without charges. He was in in solitary confinement for uh, for five months. He had a very aggressive American wife and a friend. He was in, a friend of Fiero LaGuardia, whose parents should have been interned too, uh, and. He had a nervous breakdown he, uh, and couldn't function for a couple of years. How did this happen? Later, when records were opened, the second Paso at the Metropolitan had told the FBI that Pinza was a personal friend and agent of Mussolini, who he had never met or didn't, and that he was signaling to Mussolini on the Saturday afternoon uh, Metropolitan Opera broadcast, Milton Cross and all that. Uh, he was signaling to Mussolini by changing the tone of his voice. So but that's what, how you got to I go. But I thought you were going to say what? what Roosevelt said about rounding up the Italians. Oh, we, we don't have to round up the Italians. They're just a bunch of opera singers. <laughs> and, and so it turned out. <laughs> <laughs> so it turned out. Um, t- tell everyone about the battalion of Japanese... Americans in the war in Europe right. and the rescue mission. Well, what, in a way, turned uh, things around somewhat was that the uh, 30,000 Japanese Americans served in the United States military during World War II, including 6,000 of them who the public never was told about, ever, who were translators and interrogators and cave flushers in the incredibly brave people in the Pacific. Uh, and the, uh, but 30,000 served, uh, 18,000 were casualties. The 442nd Regimental Combat Team, a segregated uh, unit of Nisei, second generation uh, Japanese, including people like Dan Inouye, uh, who later the senator from uh, from Hawaii? One of the most dang- I, uh, in late 1944, in 19 early 1944, uh, the 
Texas Battalion, as it was called, was surrounded by the Germans uh, in the mountains of Italy. And the army was desperate to get them out, and they sent in the 442nd, who did get them out. They took heavy, heavy casualties. So Dan, in a way, lost his arm and won the Congressional Medal of Honor. Uh, They got them out, and then as they got them out, the press loved this great rescue story, like, like uh, like a movie. On the front page of the New York Times, they wrote a story about how all this happened. Uh, In that story, if you go into the archives tonight, you will see that what it says in the New York Times is the Texas Battalion was rescued by uh, doughboys. The word Japanese never came into it. The 442nd then became the first unit uh, to get to the outskirts of Rome and Axis capital, which we had not. Uh, they were also the first to get to Dachau, uh, the, uh, where the inmates or the prisoners thought that the Germans had sent them to kill them. The Japanese-American soldiers had to f- beg on their knees, saying, we're Americans, we're Americans, you're free. Uh, the, uh, so, uh, and then when they get to Rome, and they're there. They've gotten ahead of other units. Mark Clark uh, was the general in charge in Italy. They were ordered to stop at the outskirts of, of Rome and stayed there for two days until they could bring up enough white soldiers to march through the city in triumph. And then the Japanese were put in trucks, Japanese-Americans, and taken around Rome and back into combat. But tell how the soldiers who they rescued right. acted about it. How well, they, they, you know, they all thought they were dead. And they, and they saw these little brown men coming, as they called them. And it, they didn't know that they were there to rescue them. They also thought they were there uh, to, uh, to shoot them, execute them. 1,800 people died in the camps. Some of them, uh, mostly disease, uh, but some were shot. Dozens were shot. In the most famous case, a middle-aged Japanese guy who was deaf uh, was walking uh, inside the camp uh, by the barbed wire. The guard, I mean, these are all 19-year-old kids. What? The camps in the United States? Yeah, Yeah. this was at Manzanar. Okay. Uh, You know, they're 19-year-old kids bored out of their mind in the middle of nowhere. The guy calls on the Japanese guy to halt. Of course, the Japanese guy can't hear. And... Uh, so he shoots him in the back, kills him. He's court-martialed, found guilty. The penalty? A dollar. A one-dollar fine for unauthorized use of military equipment, the bullet. But the story I was looking for, oh. an even more different one, was how the uh, American soldiers who the Japanese unit had rescued defended them. And stood up to the racism. Yeah. Well, there was, everybody who served near them were writing letters to their hometown papers uh, saying, and in this particular case, uh, there was an editorial in a paper, I believe it was in Iowa. uh, uh, No, it was in Texas from Save the Thing. And the the newspaper had said uh, that there is no such thing as good Japanese 
Soldiers wrote back to that paper and to other papers on this, taking the same line, saying, you want to know where some good Japanese are, good Japanese-Americans are? They're buried in Italy and Germany. Uh, and then the veterans coming back actually were a major, because when the camps were emptied, these people were lost. And, but veterans who had fought with them uh, stood up to them in, in one town in Orange County when, uh, when they took, they attacked the farm of a family named Matsui, whose son had won a distinguished service cross uh, in Germany. Uh, they, Vinegar Joe Stillwell, General Stillwell, went to that town and said, if anyone here says anything, to present her with the medal, uh, the, if there's anybody here who objects to this or want to say anything, and there were plenty of people who did, uh, I'll come back here with a pickaxe brigade and wipe this town out. <laughs> there was also Mount Hood, Oregon, where one of the most beautiful places, uh, River, Oregon, one of the most beautiful places in the country between the Columbia River, River Gorge and, the, uh, and Mount Hood. Uh, there, there were 240 uh, Japanese residents, farmers. They were famous for Hood River apples, which were considered the best apples around. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the American Legion post there first took the names of the 18 Japanese serving in the army. Every town had these boards. We're old enough to remember of who was fighting and whatnot. And the American Legion went out and painted in black over the 18 Japanese names. Uh, and then they attempted, armed, to prevent them from returning. And again, the army had to intervene to let these people get back to their land, if not their home, since their homes were generally shot up or burned. I'm going to ask you to come up and to the microphones in about a minute if anybody has any questions. And there are one on each side here, microphones. Um, but first, one more question. Uh, were reparations ever paid? Mm -hmm. There were some reparations paid immediately on the return of Japanese. Uh, the Yakushi family, who had owned the $28,000 ice cream store and sold their car for $20, uh, were among the very few families who filed complaints and actually got the money, $100 is what uh, they got. Then what happened... So that's what you mean rep by reparations? Yeah. yeah, no, no, reparations came formal uh, and automatic came later. First, Gerald Ford, uh, and uh, Gerald Ford apologized uh, to the Japanese Americans saying it was a mistake uh, during Ronald Reagan's presidency and George H.W. Bush's, uh, the Congress passed a reparations bill. And if you were still alive, you had to be alive and a survivor of the camps. Uh, the federal government, although it took them 20 years to get the money out, uh, by 1994 had paid the survivors uh, $20,000, which, of course, that was in 1994 uh, money to begin with, and, and that was the, uh, uh, that was a pittance compared to what these people have lost. Billions in today's dollars, you're right. Many billions in Many today's billions. dollars 
Uh, and can, can I say what happened to Earl Warren? Oh, you have to say. Oh, I can't Earl believe was, I didn't ask you this. What? Most important A very question. religious man, and uh, as we know, uh, became governor of California by running an anti-Japanese campaign and then became chief justice of the United States. In California, uh, he was a religious man. In uh, California, they do these extensive oral histories of their governors. A woman named Amelia Fry at Berkeley did uh, question Warren. For five days, she talked about his tenure as governorship and then a little bit on the Supreme Court. And then she said on the sixth day, uh, I want to talk about the events of 1942. Earl Warren broke into tears, walked out of the room, and never came back. Uh, he knew. And I believe, there's no doubt in my mind, that the incarceration of the Japanese bears a direct line to Brown v. Topeka. This was Warren's own attempt uh, at, at redemption. I don't think it would have happened if he had not his entire life felt guilty about what what he had done. Wow. Okay, we're going to go back and forth. Go ahead. That, that really leads into my question. Did, did Earl Warren ever apologize? I mean... Uh, uh, did who? Did Earl Warren ever make Earl a public Warren, statement it, about a, his it's role? It's a controversial there? subject, oddly. Uh, in his uh, memoir, he said... Uh, it was a mistake, one sentence, it was a mistake to incarcerate the Japanese. Now the final version reads it was a great mistake too, but Earl Warren died uh, before the memoir came out and there's a bit of an intellectual debate on whether he put in the greatly uh, or not. And he, in doing what he did, he went farther than most of them, John McCloy, uh, who not only would never apologize, but brought criminal lawyers with him when he had to testify before Congress in the 1980s about this. Because after the 70s, young Japanese-American, inspired by the black civil rights movement, began to ask their parents, what did you do during the war? What happened? Uh, because the Japanese wanted to forget it, the government wanted to forget it, and it was only when activism, civil rights activism, awakened a lot of people's eyes that they could, they could find out what happened. Then the Japanese-American, the second generation, and the Sansei, the third, they have built a series of museums uh, and organizations around the country uh, to talk about this. I've been, when I'm, it's been amazing for me. You know, I'm just a writer. The, uh, but having just toured the West Coast and in crowd after crowd having people, old people, Japanese-Americans, come up and, and thank me like I was, you know, something other than, uh, than a writer. But for years, those same people would never talk about what happened. As combat soldiers almost never talk about what they saw and did, especially to their families. Well, there's something about when people turn 70, is that it? No, it's true. Holocaust survivors, all of a sudden, when they turn 70, they want to tell their grandchildren. Go ahead. So, thank you so much. It's, it's amazing. So, when we are in a war, <clears throat> do we maybe overgeneralize to hate 
Japanese Americans, or right now, as most of the country where I travel to, they believe even in New York City, we're at a war. Would, is there any kind of lesson that we can draw from that? Because I went in late September 2001 to the Middle East, and everybody there was happy. They said, we're all going to catch these terrorists. But then very soon, we turn it around from, let's get them over there before, we get, before they get us over here. And the people said that over here is, is what? Is, does it mean that we are now the enemy? Are we again generalizing maybe a whole region? Uh, what can we learn? Well, it's not over. Uh, the, uh, I wrote this book because I think if you look at our history, Indian slavery, Irish need not apply, Northern Europeans to farms, Chinese to build the railroads. We have always treated them when we didn't need them. Uh, we have always treated them with great discrimination and disdain. Uh, and because they were not like us until they were us. And they are us now. The, I, unfortunately, I've forgotten the rest of the question. That, the, the, oh, the, the lesson we have to draw from your The danger is that although the Supreme Court heard three cases uh, involving uh, Japanese internees, not internees, uh, Japanese evacuees, uh, in two cases they ruled against them. In the third, in, which involved a woman who was a civil servant in California and had signed loyalty oaths and that kind of thing when for the war. And they said that no, there was no... No one had anything against this woman. She shouldn't have been. Uh, however, in those cases, and including the apologies, are the fact that the Justice Department admitted that it destroyed any evidence that showed the people they were prosecuting uh, weren't, this just happened within the last year, uh, weren't ever guilty of, of anything at, at all. But the loaded gun as Supreme Court Justice, uh, my mind went blank, not Rogers, Jackson, Robert Jackson said, called the fact that the laws that made this possible are still on the books. We could round up the Muslims tomorrow. Under all, it would all be legal, or the Supreme Court would say it was legal, as they did. It was totally unconstitutional. John McCloy, Deputy Secretary of War, Eminence Greece uh, said, when someone said, well, this is not constitutional. And he said, I'm a Wall Street lawyer. The Constitution is just a scrap of paper to me. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Whoa. But the, I, I do the, I mean, one of the main points is that we could do this tomorrow. But the Supreme Court ruled on the individual cases, but never declared, though it was clearly unconstitutional, that it was unconstitutional, and the laws are still there. Hi, Millie. Hi, Millie. <laughs> I'm Michael Wolf. I'm a docent here. I am truly astounded by your statement that Roosevelt believed in phrenology, which right. by 1940 was totally discredited quack science, right. especially the comment that, about the shapes of their skulls. And I was hoping you could elaborate on that and specifically how you learned that. How I learned it? Basically from the papers of, of Harold Ickes, but uh, who was a hero, though mostly unknown. 
what else? He Elaborate discussed on. in the Oval Office whether, as we won the war, we should castrate all the Germans. <laughs> so it was, it was a different Franklin. time. These were different people. They, their prejudice, including, obviously, Roosevelt's a great man, uh, but his prejudices uh, in regard to race uh, and regard to religion, anti-Semitism, uh, were pretty pretty common to their time. Today, you couldn't do that. But he did it, and it's in the minutes of the White House. Okay. Uh, hi. Uh, just uh, two questions. Uh, the Canadian... Well, uh, the Canadians moved. The Canadians did this before we did. The Canadians uh, did it before. The Canadians, we did? in turn, Japanese Canadians. And why was the uh, order not really carried out in Hawaii? Okay, over to you. Uh, Canada did exactly followed our model exactly, even to the point of building uh, the their relocation camps. There were only twenty thousand Japanese in uh in canada but they treated them at least as badly as we did and they didn't release them until 1947 uh two years after the war was over on the other hand they did protect their land which which the americans did as to hawaii hawaii was 47 percent uh japanese american so that and so the question of incarcerating them all uh, meant the economy of the territory uh, would collapse. And uh, a good word for the FBI, they were part of the people who prevented that. But how, what, what impact did that have? In 19, January of 1943, when we decided that we would again let, uh, uh, have selective service apply to Japanese Americans, uh, and the army went recruiting in the camps and recruiting in Hawaii. On that first cut, only 1,300 men, young men from the camps, uh, would uh, enlisted. Uh, partly because uh, they there was a questionnaire, a loyalty questionnaire, uh, which uh, demanded it. it to show you were loyal, that you would renounce any uh, relationship or whatever with the emperor of Japan. This to kids, they were like Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney kids. They were Americans, both sides of the barbed wire. It's an American story, not a Japanese story. And they, uh, so only uh, twelve to 1,300 did. In Hawaii, where people were not interned, uh, they had to... Uh, bring out soldiers because 15,000 young men were crowding around the recruitment center because uh, they wanted to fight, including Dan Inouye, who didn't make it on the first cut. They, they finally decided they could only handle uh, 12,000 people, almost 2,000 from the camps and 10,000 from Hawaii. Later, uh, Later, other uh, people from the camp, until the end, there were 30,000 Hawaiians and people from the camp uh, who served. The Hawaiians and the mainland Japanese hated each other. 
They were totally different kind of people. The uh, Jap the Hawaiian Japanese were much darker. They spoke a Creole of English, Japanese, and Hawaiian. The Americans were graduates of Berkeley and Stanford, uh, highly educated people with light skins. And while the Hawaiians love carousing and drinking and gambling, go for broke, uh, the, uh, the Americans uh, were, and also the Hawaiians wouldn't wear shoes at first, but the, uh, the Americans, of course, wouldn't do any of those things because they were sending their money back to, to their families in the camps. And finally, a, a young lieutenant colonel in Camp Shelby in Mississippi, which is where they... The, the four, four, uh, uh, where the Japanese Americans trained and where the army had decided not to let them in the service because all the Hawaiians and the mainlanders would do was fight each other. And this guy got the idea. There were two camps in the swamps of Arkansas, and he took three busloads of the Hawaiians for a social weekend at Rawa, one of the camps, and in a way, was their leader. He was a sergeant by then. And they went and they, they thought it was a prison war camp. The guns were all pointed in. Uh, and then they stayed there for two days. And then he came back to Shelby and in a way presided at a meeting of all the Hawaiians and said, these people are better than we are. They're fighting for the country, even though the country's imprisoned their parents. It was dramatic stuff. Stunning. I forget where I am. Yeah. Over here. Oh, okay. Um, you didn't really touch on Korematsu and other litigation, which went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and I don't know if your book covers it or right. not. Uh, would you, for the benefit of the audience, discuss briefly uh, why Korematsu ultimately failed, given the obvious um, uh, unconstitutional measures that were taken against the Japanese Americans. Right. Uh, what was the rationale of the majority in the court against uh, Korematsu? That the government, well, all right, Fred Korematsu was one of the four cases uh, and is a great hero to many Japanese Americans. That was not such a hero to me, but that's a whole other point. By the publisher, the editor on this book was a young Japanese American named uh, Emi Kanda at Henry Holt. She and I would argue all the time about Korematsu's role. Uh, Fred Korematsu uh, had an Italian girlfriend in Oakland. He was a welder by trade. Uh, and he didn't want to go to the camps. And uh, he had some plastic surgery, badly done, uh, so he could stay with his Italian girlfriend. Wow. The FBI caught him. He was a welder. Uh, in a shipyard in Oakland, and uh, they arrested him, never saw the girl again. But his name was the one used when Roger Baldwin, the head of the ACLU, liked the Supreme Court. Why didn't these things happen? They were all protecting Roosevelt. The cases were not heard until after the 1944 uh, election, and Korematsu lost, uh, but he well, what was has rational? become a national hero over... What, what was the, yeah, what did, what did the court say? Why didn't it court say it was unconstitutional? In time of war, uh, the, uh, the, the national security, the, the, the army could do whatever it wanted in military zones, uh, and they left it at that. They didn't talk about the constitutionality 
of what had happened. It's fascinating, you probably know this, it's fascinating to note very briefly that um, after 9-11, Korematsu filed an amicus brief with the Supreme right. Court against the incarceration at Guantanamo. Yes. Young, really? young civil liberties lawyers have filed, filed that suit. Pardon me? It was young civil liberties attorneys. Roger Baldwin, who was protecting Rockefeller and would not allow the ACLU to take up any case that mentioned race. Uh, and so that a lot of the young ACLU attorneys quit, and they represented the Japanese on their own, including the 6,000 Japanese that we kidnapped in uh, South America. Uh, American troops came in planes and picked up, there were Japanese Peruvians, particularly Argentine, or Argentines, whatever, at the point of a gun, these people were loaded onto planes and taken to the camps. Uh, a very, a, a wild man, an Irish wild man named Wayne Collins represented them as well because at the end of the war, we wanted those uh, South Americans to trade for prisoners and Americans uh, trapped in Japan when the war began. That didn't work out very well. But then when the war was over, we, were, we went ahead to deport the Peruvians uh, and the other Latin Americans because they had entered the country illegally without papers. <laughs> I know you're joking. Wayne Collins and the other young guys who quit the ACLU represented those Peruvians, and they are now American citizens, but uh, they are us now. You, you mentioned the complicity uh, of the press in this horrible oh, occurrence. Yeah. Uh, the role of the New York Times in the Holocaust is, is a great book buried by the, buried by the Times. I believe it's Laurel Leff. Uh, what was the role of the New York Times? What did they know? When did they know it? And if they knew about it, what did they do about it? And how do they report it? Because you gave us the one example. Right. Did they know more? And did they just hide it? Did they report it? What they do? I don't know whether they knew more, but they almost did not cover at all uh, the Japanese, except for two things that I got. One was the story about the Doughboys, and the other was Ann McCormick, who was then a foreign affairs columnist of the uh, uh, of the New York Times, uh, visited one of the camps in 1943. Uh, and wrote that this was the most amazing thing she had ever seen anywhere in the world, that these people hadn't done anything, uh, but they were being held at gunpoint. But there is very, very little in the Times or any other publication that this happened. And if there is copy, for instance, if you look back in Life magazine, uh, the photographs, there were two things at work. Uh, the photographs were censored. You never, even... They, they organized these camps, the Japanese themselves, Japanese-Americans, into small American towns with high schools and yearbooks, but always the military is cropped out uh, of, these, of these pictures. The other thing was, among the photographers in the camps were Ansel Adams, Dorothea Lang, uh, but their work uh, was censored, and the Japanese-Americans were proud people so that whenever... They were not allowed cameras themselves. Whenever the uh, photographers who were working for the government uh, came, 
and wanted to take their pictures, they didn't want to be seen as victims or as people who had lived in horse stables. They would dress up totally, and when the photographer arrived, uh, it would look like a family portrait uh, situation. And those were the pictures that were distributed nationally. Adams was incredibly mad about it, but there was nothing he could do. Thank you. Uh, as, as an Asian American, I would like to thank you personally as well. Mm -hmm. I oh, think what you have done you. is rather heroic. My question might be slightly off the mark, so I you know, beg your pardon in advance. We discussed this theme of historic injustice and responsibilities and so on and so forth. Now, how do you feel about this urging, almost entreaties that for true reconciliation, the Japanese government has to be a little more forthcoming in recognizing its behavior and its actions that were done during uh, World War II, including what sure. Secretary Clinton called sex slavery and other truly very, very sad events. How do you feel about that, that urge? Well, it's a blot on our history. I mean, it, it is. I don't think the government's going to do anything more. And of course, as we found out, it did. It uh, the Japanese got smart and civilized in a little shorter than two thousand years, and I think that uh, it also uh, out marriage, marrying someone of a different race, is highest among uh, Japanese Americans than any other group. I mean, they have become part of the society, and I think the pressure no longer exists unless we try to do it again. I would expect at this point, Japanese Americans would rise up if that were tried again. And they were the first people to speak out against Guantanamo and against uh, retribution after 9-11, after because they really thought it was going to start all over again. But I think, you know, the story for the Japanese American, they obviously, in their hearts and minds, it will live forever. But I, you know, I think it's the country thinks it's settled. The nation thinks it's settled. Uh, did the uh, political leadership of the United States and the military leadership did they seriously think that there was a chance of an invasion even before the, the Battle of Midway? Because my understanding was there never was a chance of the Japanese army uh, being able to invade the United States, at least the continental United States. Right. Well, that's the disgrace. Franklin Roosevelt knew what you knew. Frank, he knew they, had, they didn't have the capacity. He knew the Japanese Americans uh, were loyal. Uh, and, but the politics of the West Coast uh, drove, uh, drove that. I mean, the real scandal is that the people who did this knew it wasn't necessary. Wow. I want you to know, this is one of the great reads, if you want to get riled up. What? And I'm sure you're halfway there anyway after tonight. Right. And, and the book signing will take place. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs. Leslie Stoll, I want to thank you for being here thank over you. and over again. Always great. The, the greatest moderator interviewer that there is. And Richard Reeves, 
Thank you so much. This was, every time you come, it's always a powerful, moving evening. He will be signing books. The books are in our museum store. Thank you all so much for coming. We'll see you all again. Thanks. All right.